Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor and last month I was stirring Glasgow with fellow podcasters Marlene Halliday and Lynn Dugan at Scottish CND's Festival for Survival, looking at the twin crises of nuclear arms and the climate emergency. And here are the highlights. We've got lots of clips from some of the best speakers, the best parts of their speeches. But we thought beforehand we would reflect a little bit on what we thought of the event. I thought it was a great day. What, what about you two? I was a bit, not exactly puzzled, but I found the title Festival for Survival just a little bit strange. Because, you know, you think festival, well, that'd be good. That'll be, yeah, be interesting. And, but then you put it with survival. And I kind of felt it was a bit of an odd juxtaposition of of words. However, that proved to be completely wrong because I thought it was excellent. And the way they linked up climate change with information about the nuclear threat, maybe we don't often see those connections or understand those connections. That's certainly one thing that I got out of it I really appreciated. They tied it into the other big crisis we've got going on at the moment which is the cost of living crisis and looking at the money that is spent on nuclear weapons that would be better spent looking after society community the phrase that kind of stuck with me after the event was when they say ah but we've got these nuclear weapons just for defense but they're not for defense they're they're mutually assured destruction is what they represent even Mm. if it's an accident one warhead set off accidentally whoever it's heading towards you're not going to like get on the blower to them and go, by the way, we set it off accidentally, sorry, they're going to have retaliated and, you know, ba-doomf, and that's it, everybody gone. One of the bits that actually isn't in this programme, but it is on our YouTube channel, IndiePod Extra, there was a really interesting presentation from Linda Pence-Gunter and Philip Weber, two scientists, about the myths that surround uh, nuclear weapons and also nuclear power, Definitely well worth watching those presentations on our other channel. The myth that that stuck in my mind was, if the other side think you'll never use your weapon, then you don't need to have one because it's not convincing anybody. And if the other side do think you're going to use your weapon, that's their justification for them having weapons. So either way, as you say, mutually assured destruction, there's no deterrent in there at all. It's just that is a myth. The other thing that struck me was that there's a generational difference as well. That There was a quite a few younger folk there, a few people on the stage who were younger. And one of them had said that everybody she knew was really switched on to climate change, but they weren't at all cited on the nuclear side of it, which is interesting because we kind of look at it as they're both part of our our consciousness i certainly remember it from the 80s and the the, always the the threat of nuclear war where we lived was not far from grangemouth i always thought i'm probably right in thinking that that grangemouth would be a target wouldn't it so the, the way our house was situated the houses behind us were much higher up the hill and the noise from the furnaces at grangemouth kind of bounced off these houses behind us almost amplified them I could hear this at night there were times when I was literally lying in my bed thinking oh god is this something happening there was that real genuine threat there 
I think it's interesting about the generation thing, you know, because I can remember when the Cuba Missile Crisis was underway. So that was, that was what, was Khrushchev and Kennedy, wasn't it? You know, it was Khrushchev. His plan was to put short-range missiles onto Cuba, which naturally enough, the US were not very happy about. And Kennedy called Khrushchev's bluff and, uh, and, and Khrushchev blinked and, and they all turned around and went back. Russia, but that, you know, I can, can remember that. I mean, that was scary. So you know, you've always got that in the background. But I suppose you know, younger generations, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, maybe the Cold War. You know, the Cold War it was at its peak then, and so there's been a couple of generations in there who haven't had that kind of experience. Mm. It was interesting because in the afternoon I was in the main hall and I was chatting away to this lady next to me, and we got talking about uh, Greenham Common. And she said to me, you know, had she asked if I'd been down? And um, I said, no, I'm afraid at that, that time, my political kind of awareness just wasn't in that direction. And so I said, oh, were you there? So it turns out, actually, I was talking to Rebecca Johnson, who was one of the high profile oh. women down at Greenham Common. And, you know, she got arrested. She was sort of telling me that actually closed down a lot of her options later on as regards jobs. She had a criminal record. So we're talking yeah. a bit about that. It was just great, actually, having a chapter. And, and one of the funny things was there was a chap got up and he didn't really have a question. He, what he had was a little speech that he wanted to do. And then he started talking about the Greenham Common women. And then he said, of course, most of them have gone now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I turned to look at, at Rebecca and she just stood up and went, uh, excuse me, we haven't. <laughs> One of us is sitting here. I did appreciate that. And also I appreciated, there was one young woman in particular, Laura Young, that young activist, scientist and an activist. And it was great actually sitting, kind of listening to her. She's got the enthusiasm and confidence and, yeah. you know, she made, she's made things happen. It was good. But I think people don't realise we are where we are. It may not be where exactly where we want to be, but it could be a lot worse. And it's because of people going out and making protests and, and raising awareness around the, the real dangers of, of nuclear weapons. And I mean, the other thing that just goads me is why, why do we pay for American weapons to be cited in our country? They should be paying us <laughs> and saying, you know, we should be charging them rent. If there ever was to be a nuclear weapon fire, that decision would be made in Washington. It will not be London yeah. or anyone in the British government who will decide to fire a nuclear weapon because actually they can't. Because as you said, they're not our weapons. Yeah. The key, the key for them lies over in Washington, presumably in the US president's desk somewhere. You're not even in control of them. That's um, it. Yeah. And would the retaliation? be aimed back at us because Aye. that's where they're cited. Exactly. Aye, they're yeah, not going to stop and say, who paid for these things you've yes, just fired at me? They're just going to fire back. There's lots of little memorable things popped out from a lot of the, the speeches. The, the one that I just loved, and it's the one we're, we're starting with. Well, two things. I love the poem. Absolutely. What a fantastic idea to start a conference with a poem, especially read so beautifully. But the other one was Gene Urquhart talking about being an activist. Was it in Ullapool in the 80s? I loved that. And just the idea of just do what you can, anything, yeah. just do it. Yeah. You know, that was, great. that was such a, it's a great story that oh. we'll not do a spoiler right at the moment. <laughs> this is Lynn Jameson from Scottish CND opening the conference. I'm going to start with Kathleen 
Jamie R. Macher's poem, which she wrote after the COP26. Um, I think some of you will know this poem. What the Clyde said. I keep the heat. I'm cool. If you asked, but you never ask, I'd answer in tongues. Hinton Ulins, Kelvin, Nathan, Leaven, Cart. But neutral, balancing both banks equally. As I flow, do I judge? I mind the hammer's swing, the welder's flash, the heavy steel-built ships I board downstream from my city. And maybe I was a wee bit of a blatherskite, guy foo myself when we seemed damn near unstoppable. Now, how can I stomach these storm rains? How can I slip quietly away to meet my lover, the wide-armed ocean, knowing that I'm a poisoned chalice that she must drain, drinking everything that you chuck away? So now, I'm a listener. Think of me as one long liquid ear, silently gliding by. I heard the world's voices. I heard folk free lands where my ships once sailed. I heard your beautiful promises. I am a river, but I can take a side. And hear this, from now on, all I want to keep afloat like we paper boats are the hopes of the young folk chanting at my backs, fear in their spring bright eyes, and hear this, fail them, and I will rise. Okay. Right. This is veteran campaigner and former MSP Jean Urquhart. Like, like many folk, I think, in the 60s, I wore a CND badge because it was kind of fashionable. I had no idea what it meant. But beatniks kind of wore them with black polo neck jumpers and everything. And it looks good, you know. Just by chance, I went to a, a conference in Edinburgh that really moved me. By that time, I was living not in Glasgow, but in Ullapool. I couldn't get it out of my mind. The speakers were very powerful. Anyway, I uh, was moved to write an article about the conference in the Ullapool News, and I put all the scary stuff in about, you know, a nuclear bomb landing in Ullapool would see folk in Plockton and Gairloch with their skin peeling off and their eyes melting. And I talked about the two-headed fish being caught off the pier in Danoon and all the things that I'd learned at this conference. And the result of that was uh, a CND group starting in Ullapool. And it was very, very active. We actually had about 8% of the population. And we ran a double-decker bus to the October demo in London. And we took high school kids with us, and they thought it was, you know, join CND and see the world. And we were moved then to, to organize what we called a peace day. 
we were starting with a march, and Scottish CND had a wee leaflet to advise local groups how to organise a march. And it really didn't have much on it. It just said, out of courtesy, tell the police. So I had a wee map of Ullapool and I went along, and our, our sergeant at that time, I think was from South Uist, I went in and said that we were going to have a march, and he looked completely dumbfounded. A march, he said. I said, yeah, a march. Oh. And, I, and I said, here we are, we've got a plan here, and we're going to walk around. And he said, and how many people are coming on the march? And I said, well, that's what we don't know. We would like to think there might be 150, but there'll definitely be three. <laughs> and he said, well, well, we'll take the car out anyway. <laughs> and he said, we'll follow at a safe distance if there's 150. And if there's just the three of you, we'll give you a lift. So they were, they were heady days, you know, they were heady days and there was a, a real passion, I think, uh, about the topic that we have to come back to. And this conference, I think, today, I hope, will see us begin that community because that's where it starts. It's wearing the badge, even if you don't know what it means in the first instance. This is Mark Ruskell, Scottish Green Party, MSP. I'm sure most people in this room know about the doomsday clock that was set up in 1947 by the atomic scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. They wanted to show the world how far from global catastrophe, from midnight we are each and every single year. And of course, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, the clock was set at seven minutes to midnight. The clock now just sits at 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe that it has ever been. And in recent years, we've seen the deepening of inequality, the normalization of war, escalating climate emergency, a lack of restraint on nuclear testing, and in the blink of an eye, thousands of children in Gaza killed. And in their statement earlier this year, the atomic scientists reflected on how the war in Ukraine has made multilateral global action so much harder to achieve, whether that's been on the climate, whether that's been on disarmament, or even on disease control. But while there have been you know, welcome global shifts to renewable energy over the last year, there's also been a new dash for oil and gas, fossil fuels that we simply cannot afford to burn. And of course, all of this is against a backdrop of disinformation coming from bad actors designed to disrupt the action needed to tackle these crises. And there are, of course, vested interests for whom the expansion of war, the stockpiling of weapons, climate breakdown, and disaster capitalism means profit and power. So it's our job, it's the job of everybody in this room to stand up against these interests. And just last week, the, the tiny island nation of Kiribati, a nation that may disappear due to climate change, successfully won a UN resolution calling for funding to address the loss and damage caused by nuclear testing. An incredible act for a small island nation. So this is a time for determined optimism. Now for me personally, 
It started at Stirling Uni in the early 1990s, helping Phil Jones and David McKenzie chase down and stop a nuclear convoy as it thundered through the Raplock. That certainly got the adrenaline pumping, and I wouldn't rule out doing it again either. <laughs> but years later, uh, I was delighted to work again with David and with Jane Talents at Newtwatch, highlighting the obscenity that nuclear weapons are still being driven on public roads through our communities today. And that the risk of a catastrophic incident involving a nuclear convoy is very small, but that risk has been there month after month and every year since the convoys first started running. Now, the convoys are the UK's worst kept secret. In Stirling, up until recently, they used to park up at the barracks in Forthside overnight behind a flimsy chain link fence next to the local cinema. Literally a disaster movie waiting to happen. Now, the consequences of such an incident are likely to be considerable loss of life and severe disruption both to the British people's way of life and to the UK's ability to function as a sovereign state. Now, those aren't my words. Those are the words of the Ministry of Defence found out through an FOI request in 2006. For some people living around Faz Lane, at least some information and advice about nuclear incident risks are provided, but nothing's given to communities who live along the routes of the convoys. So the work of Nukewatch has been critical in understanding just how unprepared councils emergency services would be if there was ever a convoy incident. And following Nukewatch's Unready Scotland report, I held a parliamentary debate on the findings in 2018. In response, the government, Scottish Government, commissioned a review of the preparedness of both the fire and police services to deal with a nuclear incident. But while this did raise awareness and has led to the tightening up of some procedures, the assessment of risk and the overall preparedness remains woefully inadequate. But look, there is of course only one way to avoid that apocalyptic threat of nuclear weapons and that's to get rid of them once and for all. This is Melissa Park, Executive Director of ICANN. So the abolition of nuclear weapons is an essential part of respecting and protecting the planet, the climate, humanity and all living things. There can be no nuclear weapons on a sustainable planet. In a joint statement in 2022, UN Security Council permanent members agreed that a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. The only way to ensure this is total disarmament. But rather than disarmament, that the nuclear armed states are legally obliged to pursue under the NPT. We're seeing them modernising and expanding their arsenals. $83 billion cost of it last year. This expenditure comes at the cost of investment in genuine human security, such as disarmament, development, diplomacy, health, housing and environmental protection. So what can we do? Well, let's recognise the incredible power of civil society in shaping history. As wise woman Margaret Mead once said, never doubt that a small group of concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Civil society movements have a long history of driving meaningful change, and today ICANN stands as a shining example of what collective global action can achieve. ICANN was started in Melbourne, in 2007 by a small group of people sitting around a kitchen table and asking themselves what they could do to rid the world of the most devastating weapons ever devised. Just 10 years later, ICANN had become a civil society movement made up of hundreds of partner organisations 
and won the Nobel Peace Prize for its work highlighting the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons and for helping to get the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons adopted at the General Assembly. The treaty came into force in 2021 and it is a game changer. It is rooted in the moral, legal and humanitarian imperative to ban these weapons of mass destruction rather than in the dangerous theory of deterrence. ICANN's focus now is on getting as many countries as possible to join the treaty with the aim of prohibiting, stigmatising and eliminating nuclear weapons based on the earlier successful campaigns around landmines and cluster munitions. Almost half the countries in the world have signed, ratified or acceded to the treaty and we expect that number to come up in the coming months. Uh, incidentally, the exciting new campaign for a fossil fuel treaty has been modelled on ICANN's campaign to achieve the TPNW. Everyone can do something. You can talk to your neighbour, you can lobby your local council um, and local MP to support disarmament and the TPNW, you can write a letter to your local paper. It's about creating momentum. It's about every one of us lighting our small candle. When everyone does that, we create a whole lot of light in the world. And finally, I want to leave you with some wise African words. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night in a tent with a mosquito. This is Bishop William Nolan, Archbishop of Glasgow. We now have a treaty that bans the possession of nuclear weapons. Not signed, of course, by any of the countries that actually have those weapons. But back in 1963, the then Pope John XXIII issued a document in which he called for those nuclear states to get rid of their weapons and then called for nuclear weapons to be banned. And so I was quite delighted when a few years ago, not only did the United Nations pass this treaty, but also that the Vatican under Pope France was among the first to sign it and to ratify that. Now, of course, it's just been ignored by those who have nuclear weapons. And I think we have to reflect because, you know, here, you know, we're all convinced of the reasons why we shouldn't possess these weapons. But why is it that politicians and wider society are not convinced? We have to reflect on that, why we're not convincing of that. I think one reason perhaps is fear. As soon as anyone stands up and suggests we get rid of these weapons, you can be sure there's a media response saying that you're leaving our country undefended. And of course, the threat from other countries then hyped up the threat from Russia, the threat from China, or whatever our potential enemy appears to be at that time. And when there's fear, there's no trust. And when there's no trust between nations, then people arm themselves to protect themselves. So fear is one thing. But I wonder also whether another thing that affects us here in the UK is also this, the idea of status. There is a certain status that comes from having nuclear weapons. And of course, just ask Kim Jong-un in North Korea. North Korea, who would pay any attention to North Korea at all if it wasn't for the fact that he had nuclear weapons and was threatening to use them? And of course, the five permanent members of the UN Security Council are all nuclear states. One of the things I hope will be achieved by this treaty banning the possession of nuclear weapons that it will become to be seen as unacceptable to have them. No politician, no country will stand up and boast of the fact of having biological or chemical weapons. They'd be far too ashamed. 
And we need to get to the stage where perhaps the shame of having these weapons will persuade our politicians to get rid of them and to ban them. No one should be proud of the fact that we are a nuclear state or most of the amount of money they spend on these weapons. A few years ago, Pope Benedict said that deterrence does not bring peace. It does not bring security. And in fact, the deterrence was fueling the arms race as the nuclear powers sought to keep their nuclear arsenal not just up to date, but to enhance it. And so vast sums of money are spent, not just in this country, but throughout the world on nuclear weapons under this illusion of deterrence that it brings us peace. Deterrence is like me taking a gun to my neighbor's head and my neighbor taking a gun to my head so we don't, we don't do anything to each other. That's not peace. And what we want is peace. Everybody wants peace. But we have to learn that peace is not brought about by war. Peace is not brought about by deterrence. And peace is not brought about by nuclear weapons. The sooner we get rid of them, the sooner we can have peace in our world. This is Laurie Young, scientist and climate activist. I think that's a challenge for all of us to be thinking about how do we continue to bring people along on this journey, especially some of the younger generations. And I find that you know, young people in the climate space are super engaged. They know so much. Even primary school kids are coming through with this amazing knowledge of our world, what happens to our world, what we need to do to get climate justice. But they don't know anything really about nuclear disarmament because it's just a different generation and it's a different threat and it's something that they're not learning about. So that's a challenge to you, to me, to all of us, to think about how we can be continually educating, even if it feels like, oh, this is something that everybody should know, surely. Campaigning collaboratively is one of the ways that, that we can make the most change. It's not easy. It takes a lot longer. But it is something that is so beneficial when you do it. First of all, we just need to make sure that all of our campaigning efforts, the campaigns that we run, are accessible and you know, include as many people as possible. So I think that's you know, everything from making your buildings accessible, your resources accessible, like making sure everyone can chip in. But I think also it's about recognising that when we bring in other perspectives, that's when we can see the biggest change and the most successful change. One of the things I found really interesting this year has been a campaign I've been leading on to ban disposable vapes, right? That's a bit random. <laughs> but actually, it's something that's kind of come out of nowhere, and it's a really important topic. Now, I came to this because I was out with my dog, and I was walking through the streets that I walk through every day, and I started finding these disposable vapes, which are these small, silly electronic devices that are a nightmare. And I started finding them as litter. And I was really annoyed about this. And so I started looking to see if anybody was talking about this online. And there was kind of nothing. You know, nobody really had research. Nobody had information. Nobody was doing campaigning or anything. And so I started to ask people and prod people who are in my sphere, you know, is anybody thinking about this? And so the usual suspects came together. You know, it's the environmental organizations, Keep Scotland Beautiful, Marine Conservation Society. You can imagine who, the, who they were. These are super problematic items. They are the height of disposability 
a huge part of our carbon footprint, if you call it, our climate impact, is just the stuff that we consume and throw away. And these are just like promoting disposability, promoting single use. And in a country that's trying to promote a circular economy, they have no place. They have lithium batteries in it that need to be mined around the world. They're then just thrown away after one use. They're a fire risk. And then, of course, you uncover the huge public health issue. You've got youth vaping, you've got young people taking this up who have never smoked or vaped before. And as this campaign was moving, it started very much with core environmental groups, the ones who are out doing litter picking surveys and beach cleans. But we realised, actually, as the problems with this item grew, we realised we needed to make the table bigger and get more people into our meetings and, and into these discussions. And so suddenly it went from a very core environmental campaign and then we had the waste industry came in and were talking to us about the risks to them with fires and the problems with recycling. We then had the vaping industry having conversations with us. We had shopkeepers telling us that they felt guilty selling these products, but they felt trapped because, you know, in a cost of living crisis where there's so much profit to be made, you know, they felt they had to sell them. We had public health organisations coming in and talking to us about the epidemic that was coming. We had youth organisations coming together. And we've had the vast majority, 29 out of 32 Scottish councils, put forward motions and do it from the ground up. In the last year, we've done all of this work, all of this campaigning around disposability, electronics, waste, young people, and we now have a consultation coming from the UK government, representing all the nations, so it's for here as well, to tackle this issue. And one of the reflections I have is that I think it's been so successful because we have a huge diversity of people around the table. We're not just talking about them because they're litter. We're talking about them because it's a risk to our waste industry. It's got young people, they're you know, grasping onto young people and giving them a nicotine addiction. You know, it's, it is a litter problem, but there's all these things. And so it, it makes me think about in Scotland when we are pursuing anything, any justice issue, climate, nuclear disarmament, we need to be bringing as many people around the table and that means relating the issue to them. I remember vividly last year we had crazy weather but we had a really extreme heat and we also had really extreme floods and the local sports fields next to where I live um, kept having to cancel their sports trainings because when it was too hot they said we, re like, we really don't want people to be training in this heat you know it really is quite dangerous so you know we need to cancel it today and then of course when it's flooding they say sorry pitch is flooded you can't come and suddenly there was all of these sports groups who were really, really interested in climate because they said, I totally get it now. I sort of understand what this means. And so it was about us trying to plug into all the different groups that we are in um, to think about how to do that. Because when we can bring people along um, and help them understand, help them be educated, but help them see how it links to them. But I think to the point about kind of wider youth engagement or, or young people, um, I think partly it's just about awareness. You know, you're not aware of what you don't know. But I think it's also about we need to go to where young people are. I don't know any young people really that, that read the newspapers. You know, we get our news in a different way. You know, we maybe read articles online or we listen to podcasts with the news on it. But certainly young people are not going to community council meetings. They're not meeting with their councillors at um, their kind of open surgeries. You know, I think we need to recognise that. 
So we need to think about where do we put our work? What are the different spaces? I think it is about us embracing, you know, places like TikTok, Instagram, social media, because that is where a lot of young people are. And something that really struck me, so last year, so TikTok, which is known, I think, people think about it as a funny video platform that people go and post videos dancing or of cats and dogs. Last year, TikTok overtook Google by number of searches. And that is because there's a whole generation of young people, when they think of a search engine, when they think about, I've got a question I want to ask, they're not going to Google, they're going to the platforms that they recognize. And so I think that's a challenge for us, like how are we putting our work on the platforms that young people are based on? The vape campaign I've been doing over the past year, I've done TikToks about it, and they have got millions of views. That is the biggest way I've been pushing out information to the generation most impacted by this. This is Bill Kidd, MSP. We all believe that Scotland can be a beacon for a world without nuclear weapons. That's what we've got to aim for. Throughout this time, one thing has struck me, and that is the regard and respect that people hold internationally for Scotland and the efforts here to date um, for the huge potential to play an active, constructive and indeed central role to the global issues facing us today. In my position as a parliamentarian and as convener of the cross-party group on nuclear disarmament in the Scottish Parliament, it was my honour to lead a members' debate on the issue of nuclear weapons-free zones, particularly the creation of one across the European continent. That's something that I think that we can hold a particularly strong place in developing. I think it's important that we do that. Now, a lot of people um, think that this is unlikely that it could ever happen, but then again, um, Scotland actually was uh, proud to play a role a few years back in the establishment of METO, that's the Middle East Treaty Organisation, when they set up in Edinburgh. And it was people like Janet Fenton and Lynn and others who actually helped to get that off the ground. And I think that's extremely important to remember that if you can do that and have the courage to do that in the Middle East, Israel, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, there are Palestinian people in it and they're working with Israelis and it shows that that can be done and it's something that we need to promote. It's an idea that is hugely encouraging and something I believe we need to harness now and build on it. And I will do everything I can to help to achieve this and I know that you will also. It was 78 years ago that man's inhumanity to man led to the twin atomic detonations at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we can remember that in Nagasaki alone, everything within a mile of ground zero was annihilated and more than 40,000 human beings were killed by the initial detonation. The human and environmental legacy of such acts have been devastating and we've got to make sure that they don't ever happen again. And it's said that we need to learn from history to avoid repeating past errors, but today, as much as ever, the risk of escalation under the dark shadow of nuclear confrontation is ever-present. But even though we're living under that shadow, we need to look for the light and fight what is right and look for a better tomorrow. After the tragedies of 78 years ago, hopes for a nuclear weapons-free world were seen, as I said earlier, as naive. Few would have believed that today, almost half of the world's population, more than half of its land area, and almost two-thirds of its countries are in nuclear weapons-free zones. 
There is light and there is hope for the future. This is Dr Claire Duncanson of the University of Edinburgh. Really exciting to hear the Scottish Government announce it was going to develop a feminist approach. And in that, it joins um, another 15 countries. There's now 16 around the world that are developing some sort of feminist approach to foreign policy. But it has to be said that a lot of these states are adopting quite a limited version. A version that tends to focus on the inclusion of women and ameliorating harms on women which are super, super important, but on their own insufficient. So the Scottish Government so far has published a background note and uh, quite a lot of research that it's done in order to develop its approach to a feminist foreign policy, and I've been involved in, in some of that work. There's a sort of mixed picture emerging. So there are some signs of, of the Scottish Government, like other states, just following business as usual, the way states have always conducted external relations, with a sort of limited feminist addition. So I'll give you some examples, focusing on the, the peace and the climate space. You know, we see a lot of talk in the emerging policy about support for women peace builders and support for human rights defenders. And that's obviously better than not supporting women peace builders. It's better than abandoning human rights defenders. But it's not on its own going to lead to a transformation of the things that are driving ecological crisis and war. There's probably not going to be enough in this policy that tackles some of the root causes like arms manufacturing that we know takes place here in Scotland. And in in terms of climate, likewise, we're seeing a lot of emphasis, I think, emerging on the great stuff the Scottish Government is doing to try and make sure in its work around the world with communities to help them address the impacts of climate crisis, they're doing a lot to make sure women are included in these projects. That these projects aim at gender equality at the same time as they aim at um, increasing resilience to climate crisis. But that on its own isn't getting at the root causes. We need to see more in this Scottish Government feminist approach to foreign policy about how it's going to tackle the drivers of ecological and climate collapse. You know, what it's going to be doing to tackle fossil fuel extraction, the mining for the, the critical minerals that are needed in uh, so much renewable energy, but that cause displacement of people and ecological devastation across the global south as well. So we need, we need to be addressing that in a feminist foreign policy. However, uh, there's also loads of positive glimmers in this emergent feminist approach to foreign policy coming from the government. On the peace front, we see a strong emphasis on a rules-based international order, on multilateral approaches, on a human rights-based approach, and that's super important. I think particularly if we think about the war crimes we are seeing being committed in Gaza today and the sense in which it's fear of the International Criminal Court that's one of the few things that some Israeli leaders seem to care about. The importance of a rules-based international order is really crucial as a counter to ever-escalating militarism. We also see in the Scottish Government's emergent approach a commitment to pursuing the safe and complete withdrawal from our soil of nuclear weapons. So that's going to be a hugely positive part of the policy and you don't tend to see so much of that in other countries' feminist foreign policies. The continuation of the good stuff the Scottish Government's already done on loss and damage 
framing that as climate reparation in recognition of the ways in which Scotland and other countries in the global north have already used up our fair share of carbon budgets. So this contribution to loss and damage is, as part of climate reparation, is in part about creating a fairer global economic system. It's about a transfer of wealth from, from global north countries to global south to try and put things right. There's promising stuff around financial justice, we might call it, and also likely promising stuff around what we really need to see, which is a transformation in our economic model, away from a model that is about extracting from the earth, using, using up, discarding, polluting, just that kind of extractivist, destructive model that has driven us to this ecological and climate precipice, and instead championing much more just, inclusive, sustainable, circular economic models, building on the work Scotland's done about championing a well-being economy. Those kinds of steps towards structural change, then I think this is something that we can all get behind and try and uh, support the Scottish Government in doing, but push them to go further. That's the kind of steps we need to see if Scotland is to make a contribution to peace and climate justice. And this is Dr Olamide Samuel from the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. It's really good to see you all here in Glasgow. Um, when I got the invitation, I was excited to come to Glasgow because I was here in June um, this summer for a different conference um, and I must confess as remarkable as that conference was I must say the nightlife is particularly attractive in Glasgow <laughs> you know the sorts of conversations you can have just over a pint with people that are interested in knowing where you're from uh, was, was quite quite uh, the attraction so I look forward to pints after this as well you know, Melissa highlighted a very important African quote regarding nuclear weapons, and it reminded me of a quote that I brought uh, to the attention of, of a group called The Elders about two weeks ago um, in London. And this quote is in the Yoruba language, and it goes, And what this means is, given enough time, a stammerer is going to learn how to say the word father. Now, the fact that we have 12,000 nuclear weapons in the world today, most of them on high alert, with states that have different conceptions of what security should be, given enough time, the stammerer is going to learn how to say the word father. Given enough time, it's only a matter of probability before nuclear weapons are used. It doesn't have to be a deliberate use. It could be accidental. It could be as a result of escalation of conventional political crises but given enough time. And so we're sitting literally on a nuclear time bomb. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? So right before we started this panel, I was speaking with uh, Tim, who brought my attention to another quote, is that Scotland is the only country in the world that can disarm a nuclear power. And that is very, very remarkable. It's a very unique thing. <laughs> Now, as a Nigerian myself, as someone who had grandparents that lived under, essentially, British occupation, under the colonial state, I must say that I do share you know, quite deeply the movements for independence in Scotland. Um, I'm not going to get into the weeds of the details of whether or not 
Scots want this country to be independent, but I must say that if independence were achieved, you would be disrupting, critically disrupting, one of the oldest nuclear arsenals in the world today. I think it would be a signal to the rest of the world, a very potent signal, that the historical connection between disarmament and decolonization can still have modern-day iterations. Think about it. If you were in Whitehall and you heard of Scottish independence, the logistical challenges and the nightmares that you know, those in the MOD dream about is, where are we going to base our nuclear weapons? Right? That's the immediate question. But there's also another fundamental change to international security and politics that Scottish independence would bring. Earlier today, it was highlighted that the five permanent members of the Security Council are nuclear weapon states. Just for a moment, let's imagine that Scotland was independent. The UK, or the rest of the UK, would have to remake the case for their position on the Security Council because they would have event, you know, essentially become a different legal entity. Now that opens up a whole conversation about the value of the Security Council, the responsibilities, and who should be on there. It's not too audacious to propose that if Scotland were independent, it has an equal stake to a Security Council seat as, the, as England and Wales. This would be the sort of disruption that will be fundamental not only for our generation, but for future generations to come. This is Vanessa Hansen from ICANN. Um, so before getting into nuclear disarmament, a uh, cause that was very dear to my heart was that of DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the reason that was a cause dear to my heart is because of the ongoing humanitarian crisis that is happening right now in the country due to uranium mining or just mining of minerals in general. Um, and it's not only impacting the human lives that leave behind these mines, but also the environment. So when, when I got to learn about nuclear weapons, that intersection was that link. If I get involved in this fight, I'm advocating for all these causes, right? And so I'm not only advocating for the people of DRC, but I'm also advocating for a better environment. I'm advocating for the decolonization of the African continent. I'm advocating for climate change, as we are all here um, for today. But as I mentioned, DRC is is why I got involved and witnessing the devastating impact on the environment um, and local communities made me realize the profound connection between nuclear uh, weapons and um, environment exploitation. Now, I am originally from Ghana, um, and currently in my motherland, we are seeing the devastating consequences of nuclear weapons. Um, I also have friends from the Pacific, from, from Fiji Islands, and there as well, they are on a daily basis witnessing the devastating consequences um, of climate change, and we are literally risking losing our homes and big parts of our ecosystems because of climate change. So what does this intersection mean? Same way these two issues are a problem, they also have shared solutions. Um, And so therefore, if we are to tackle the two, we have to tackle them at the same time. As a consequence, collaboration between climate activists and anti-nuclear activists is something that's needed and something that is vital. This is USA-based activist, Tim Wallace. What's less known about in this country is that in the US, while we were busy 
marching to Greenham Common or whatever, I was at Molesworth, in the US there were cities and um, states that were refusing to have contracts with nuclear weapons companies and divesting from them. And there were household names like General Electric, which everybody was boycotting because they, you know, their light bulbs came from there. And they said, you make nuclear weapons, we're not buying your light bulbs. You make thermostats, Honeywell, we're not going to buy them from you. The Ford Motor Company, all these companies were making parts for nuclear weapons, and they don't anymore. And one of the reasons, if you go on to General Electric a website, you can find a page where they still say, we have nothing to do with nuclear weapons on their website, because they're afraid of us. They're afraid of people who are going to say, this is not acceptable. And we need the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and a Fossil Fuel Treaty to really put it straight to, to these companies. You, we, you cannot continue doing this work, and we've got to work together. And I learned just recently that University of Glasgow was the first university in, I think in the world, but certainly in Europe, that divested from fossil fuels, or at least, I don't know the whole story, but they committed to doing that back in 2014. And that's a huge, important thing. We now have 250 universities worldwide. We have hundreds and hundreds of cities that have divested. Ireland is our great hero, both on the TPNW, but they've also divested. They're the only country that has divested from fossil fuels. So we need this kind of movement and we need the University of Glasgow to divest from nuclear weapons because these companies are the problem. We have in the US, they're spending literally millions, 125 million was spent from fossil fuel companies on the last elections in the United States. They have lobbyists, so we need to, we need to be putting pressure on these companies. British Aerospace spends $4 million in the US lobbying the US Congress to make sure they keep making nuclear weapons. BP spends four million in the US lobbying to keep fossil fuels turned on. We've got to put pressure on these companies. This is Robin McAlpine from Commonweal. Tackling climate change is best thought of as a giant engineering project. It's not policy tweaks, it's not carbon pricing, although it's part of it. It's not mechanisms for, getting, for changing people's behaviour, although that's part of it. It's digging holes and putting pipes in them. It's taking down plasterboard and putting insulation up. It is an engineering project, just like building sewers or building railways are an engineering project. What we began by doing was saying, OK, Let's look at all the challenges, all the environmental challenges threatening Scotland, of which there's about seven. Resource waste, water, pollution, resources, soil degradation, carbon, uh, biodiversity loss. There's about seven basic major problems that the world's facing in the environment. So what we did was we started by saying, how close can we get Scotland's impact down to zero or positive? right across these indicators. So we went one by one and said, right, how is it that we are contributing to um, pollution? How is it that we are contributing to carbon emissions? How are we contributing to soil erosion? And what do you do to stop that happening? So we worked with, I mean, dozens and dozens of experts across an incredible range of areas. And when we started it, we had no idea if it was even possible to get to zero, zero. And it is. One of the most exciting things that I have ever been involved in in my career was the moment when I sat down and I went, my God, we can actually do this. This is real. We can get to zero, zero. 
What we did was a number of techniques. We looked at places where it's already done, we found out how they did it and what their costings were. Or we found it done on a smaller scale, we created a unit price and we multiplied it by the scale that we were looking at in Scotland. Or in some occasions we had to make estimates based on the most comparative practice that we could find elsewhere. So for example, we priced ring mains for a district heating system on the basis of water mains because we couldn't get access to the data, but they are more or less the same costs. So having done that, we were able to sum up all of the work needed to get to zero, zero and price it. Give or take, it's about 175 billion pounds. Great, this is what we need to do. How do we do it and how long does it take? So we worked with people who'd done different parts of this, I mean, literally down to the level of how many people does it take to insulate 10 houses and how long does it take? Um, so if you've got a team of 10 working in a street of 10 houses, how long will that take? Multiply it up by all the houses in Scotland and you get a time scale. So 175 billion pounds. Oh no, massive amount of money, isn't it? If you're going to get to net zero or zero zero, properly, then you've got to think about how you do it, not just what you do. So, what sense does it make for us to do what we're currently doing? What we're currently doing is importing extruded polystyrene insulation, which is horrible for the environment, mainly from Holland on large ships belching out uh, fumes to stick in our walls. Right? This makes no sense. Scotland has got one of the least well-used lands in Europe. And the land that we are not currently using is all perfectly productive for things like hemp growing or, or, or scrub or tree. Uh, and there's a wonderful company now down in the borders which is doing hemp insulation. So what we've got to do is we've got to say what's the cleanest way that we can get there? What's the best way that we can do it? And how much of this can we do in country? Because bluntly, if we cannot capture the economic gain from the investment that we have to make in zero zero, we will not be able to pay for it. So what we did was, we started to estimate how do you do this with the maximum amount of gain for Scotland. And in Scotland, we have an insulation problem because it's cold. And we have a land surfeit. So we should be putting these together and trying to identify how we use our land to generate the products that um, insulate our homes. Now, if you take that model and you do it again and again, you'll find that we can redirect a lot of the North Sea oil supply chain industries to producing the pipes and materials that you need to put in place a district heating system and so on. One of the things that frustrates me a bit is when people say it's a global problem, carbon emissions, climate change, to which I say it's absolutely not a global problem. It's an incredibly local problem. I can point with my finger at every place the carbon's coming from. It's coming out your exhaust pipe. Couldn't get much more local than that. It's coming out your chimney, your boiler flue. Can't get more local than that. It's coming out the power stations. It's coming out the fields. I can tell you where the carbon's coming from. Every single country in the world will have a different Green New Deal. We have wind and a sparse population. Our energy solutions are easy. The south of England has wind but not much available land and an incredibly dense population. Its energy solutions will be more difficult. We all have gains and advantages. Their, their ability to generate solar is better than ours. These will all be bespoke. What we can do in Scotland to make this possible, it's called 
green reindustrialisation. So what we're looking at, what we're trying to do here is find comprehensive ways of linking the need to regenerate and change our economies with the need to decarbonise in a place-specific way. We did our best to try and estimate the amount of this economic activity that we can genuinely capture in Scotland. And if you run it through the model, what it does is it generates about four and a half billion pounds of tax in a year that we can reclaim, plus about another one and a half to two billion in direct income, because we're going to nationalise the energy industry in our plan. And so what we're looking at is something like six point five billion pounds income if we can get this right and we can capture the economic gain from it. How do we finance this? 175 billion over 20 years. Well, we took the assumption this is multi-generational. If we do this, district heating could last 200 years. The houses, once insulated, will stay insulated. This is a one-off. We said, great, let's pay for it over two generations. Let's, for notional sake, assume that we borrowed it all up front on day one, 175 billion pounds, and we just paid interest on that over the whole period. What's the annual interest payments on it? It's about £5 billion, always being depreciated with inflation all the way through. So it's about £5 billion, and we're generating £6.5 billion in income. The question isn't can we afford climate change, it's what do you want to do with the extra couple of billion? And back to the studio with Fiona, Marlene and Lynn. Although, you know, this was a Scottish CND event, the Festival for Survival, it was not anything about Scottish independence. But there's an awful lot of people in that room who support Scottish independence. So it's only, I guess, about a percentage of it, but I think quite a high percentage, really. And that, after all, is the only way that we'll get rid of atomic yeah. weapons from Scotland. There was at least one of the speakers that we've included in this selection of clips from Nigeria who totally got it. He linked that with what a power Scotland's got as the only country that's ever disarmed a nuclear state. Well, I certainly went away with a bit more knowledge, more facts that I could then disseminate to people or mm. even just when you have a conversation with them that I'd be able to go, well, actually, this or this. So you're, yeah. you're speaking from a place of knowledge and you could say, well, don't, don't just believe me, go and look. Session we went to with Linda Pence-Gunter and there was lots of ways to link to other places to get that information. So that's always yeah. good. Look, it's not just me saying this. You can go and, and, and check the sources. And, and we'll link to some of those in the notes below this uh, podcast yeah. as well. So if, if you want to go and check that out. Don't forget about the, the presentation from Linda Pence-Gunter on our YouTube channel. And finally, to bring our podcast to an end, we caught up with Bill Ramsey, who suggested that we should cover this festival in the first place. We wondered how he felt now it was all over. It's, it's the first large-scale event Scottish CND have had, I think, since lockdown, and I think it was very important. There's the nuclear dimension to Ukraine, and there is also the nuclear dimension to the Israeli-Palestine thing, because people forget that Israel's got nuclear weapons, so we don't know how that one will play out. But I thought the linking of the environment to the nuclear issue was, was really good. Yeah, yeah. Because at the moment, and understandably so, the younger generation are focusing upon the environment primarily. That's their political lens. If you say, they, they look through things through that. And it's important that people of a certain age that we ensure that the, the, the link between the, the environmental and the nuclear that gets developed because we're going to see more instability. And if you've got instability 
then that presents security issues. But if you've got instability and some are arguing that nuclear power, small nuclear reactors as they call them, is a potential solution, as a potential energy source, then you're talking about the proliferation of nuclear power stations. But you're talking about the proliferation of nuclear power stations in potentially some unstable regions and areas that are not unstable at the moment but could, could become unstable because of environmental chaos, environmental breakdown and so on. So all of that really is quite important. The festival survival touched in that in many, many ways. And I think also because it was a big live event, it allowed a degree of networking of different yeah. people. And that will be good, uh, good for the future as well. Is there going to be another one next year, given that this one was, was successful? We will be moving more into the areas of hybridity. I think that's really important that we do so, where we can provide um, you know, live events. And live events are really crucial, because this is the point. If you're building an act, up an activist base and you're building up activism, Online isn't good enough. You've got to allow people to meet, to mix, to discuss away from the constraints of the online context. I mean, what you do is really useful because you are taking messages to the wider public where you're getting larger audiences. That's really important. But organizations need activists and you're not going to build up activism purely from you need you need live events yeah yeah absolutely well thanks for listening everybody we thoroughly enjoyed our day in glasgow we learned a lot and plenty of food for thought here so please share this with anyone you think would be interested bye now